Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Welcome to Cisco Champions Radio. This is episode 33 of our second season. Our topic today is, does this rack server make my data look big? In less colorful terms, we'll be talking about big data and servers. I'm Kim Austin from Cisco, and I'll be playing the part of moderator today. We're set for a lively conversation with Sean McCune, a technical solutions architect within the wonderful world of Cisco. And to keep things lively and keep Sean on his toes, we have four, yes, four Cisco champions as hosts today. And they will introduce themselves after Sean does, but they are Stuart, Eric, Chris, and Brad Haynes. Sean, you want to start us off? Absolutely. Uh, hi, folks. Uh, my name is Sean McEwen. I'm a solutions architect in the Cisco data center uh, sales force, and I've been here at Cisco for about uh, five years now, uh, focusing most of that time, almost all of it, uh, in the big data world, having come from uh, Oracle, where I was actually a customer. Uh, I was a director of IT operations over there and uh, did that for a number of years prior prior to Cisco. Introduction for me again. It's uh, Brad Haynes. I work uh, for a um, Cisco Learning Partner uh, located just outside of Toronto. Um, I'm a client solutions specialist to help put together a Cisco training. Okay. So next up, uh, Stu, Eric, or Chris? Sure. Chris Nickel. I work for a large partner, or technically VAR of Cisco, uh, based out of Pennsylvania. Uh, more of a cloud compute guy than big data, so this will be interesting. Hi, this is uh, Stuart Goomans. I'm um, joining to I'm joining us joining you guys live from my vehicle as all meeting rooms are booked this afternoon. So uh, thanks to wireless technology uh, from Cisco, I can actually join in my vehicle. I'm also joined uh, by today by the if you can see on camera the Cisco hat. I can be followed on Twitter at Wireless uh, Stu. So, let's, um, Brad, if you want to get things started, and... Uh, Sean, a, a couple questions for you. One is, um, I wonder if you can give us, um, you know, just gloss over your background. I guess one thing that I did find when I was doing some research before this call today is some of your, um, your technical training and, and background, I guess from... Uh, a, a personal interest, it, it says you have an MS in astrophysics, um, and how does being a rocket scientist help within this space? Yeah, it's a good conversation starter, right? Yeah, we, we actually, uh, uh, we had t-shirts when I was in grad school for uh, uh, the physics department, and it was, uh, the, the quote on the front was just, wait, this is rocket science. You know, so <laughs> we would uh, make light of that whenever we could, but it's, uh, it, it, it has almost no direct bearing, uh, of course, on uh, what I do on a on a day to day basis. But it's certainly a, uh, a you know a kind of discipline that I think uh, goes a long way in toward towards analytical thinking and uh, being able to uh, hone in on what data is relevant and not. And 
there's there's a lot of effort in the big data space, of course, to make sense of data. Data is just the raw material. You want actually information out of it. And uh, so being able to discern the difference between, for example, correlation and causation and uh, relevant uh, bits of information and things that are sending you down a rat hole, that, that always uh, is, is a helpful uh, skill and background to have. So I, I, I think the, the hard sciences do a pretty good job of instilling that as you're coming up in the ranks. Uh, so I definitely fall back on that training from time to time. Okay, and, and Sean, it's Brad here again. And in, in your, uh, I'll say, two decades of uh, experience in IT, what have you seen that uh, from a trending point of view? And, and if I can even talk to, you know, things basically from terabytes to petabytes as far as data transfer and storage, anything that you see or that we have to prep ourselves for, and I guess what big data is all about. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, you know, big data uh, as a term, it's um, maybe as useful as cloud <laughs> in the sense that you get 10 people in the room and 12 opinions on what it means. But um, I think for me, I try to try to uh, narrow things down a little bit. And uh, when, I, when I think of big data, I think of uh, new uh, tools and techniques, new IT architectures uh, that essentially help us deal with bottlenecks that were appearing in in our traditional architectures. So, uh, you know, we've been doing the relational database world for the better part of a couple of decades, um, Oracle uh, being one of the leaders in that space, obviously going back into the 80s. Um, and that, that entire world was uh, really and still is predicated on the notion of structured data, data that uh, we have a really good understanding of before we ever ingest it. Uh, so you, when you when you build a relational database, you build a, a schema uh, that has well-defined data types, rows, columns, and the the data uh, is, uh, that structure is applied to the data on ingest on write, um, and that works really really well for all kinds of different use cases, and that's why relational databases have been so successful. But uh, it, there's a recognition about the turn of the century, uh, 21st that is, uh, that uh, you know there are things that relational databases didn't necessarily do so well. Um, dealing with unstructured data was one thing. Uh, dealing with data where you didn't necessarily know what the format was going to look like when you when you ingested it, um, and then dealing with massive scale. Um, so. What makes data big, or what makes big data big? Um, I think for me, it's when you get to a point that trying to handle your big your, your data problem with traditional relational databases and relational database architectures um, breaks breaks at some level. Uh, you you can't build a bigger Oracle database. Uh, you or you can, but not without the uh, you know the the budget of a of the GDP that matches the GDP of a small country, right? I mean, you could do it, but it'd be really hard. Um, when when you start running up against those kinds of limits, and you say, you know what, we need to stop here uh, and either rethink what we're doing and do it a different way, or we can't do it at all. You're dealing with a big data problem at that point, um, and that that means a that means a, a shift in technology. It means a shift in uh, not just the software, but also the the hardware architectures that underpin uh, the overall effort. Hope that wasn't too vague, but no, no, that was actually a perfect big data response. Um, Brad, 
Brad here. I'm wondering if uh, Christopher, it looks like you're back online. Are you able to um, do a quick intro of yourself? Sure. Uh, Chris Nickel uh, on Twitter at CK underscore Nick. Uh, work for large Cisco law. Um, cloud is, or, uh, big data is not really my thing, just sort of learning it. So uh, uh, I will uh, tread lightly on this one. Okay, thanks, Chris. So what I want to do is, is um, look to Stu. Uh, if you've got uh, some questions for Sean that you might want to float by him. Yeah, for sure. I think, um, can everybody hear me? Um, I think for sure. I think one of the biggest things is that about big data is how big is it? <laughs> Does it is it you know? Uh, I think one of the most misconception is oh, big data. It's is it like a, a six foot tall uh, rack or is it like many ra uh, many cabinets? Uh, is it uh, petabytes, exabytes? Um, you know, uh, Googleplex bytes or whatever you want to call it. Right? So what, yeah. I mean, what really is it? Yeah, uh, you know, I hesitate to put a, a, a terabyte number on it, or, or you know, certain certain um, you know kind of limit uh, at that point. Um, but I, I think ultimately you're you're dealing with at least tens of terabytes, usually hundreds of terabytes, often petabytes. Um, beyond that, you're you're into the rarefied air of uh, you know the 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 kind of uh, Googles and Facebooks and that sort of thing when they're when they're maybe pushing towards an exabyte world, um, but uh, I think for most most customers that are entering into this space, it probably begins in the fifty to hundred terabyte range and goes north from there. Um, and the the fundamental difference, and this is kind of what I was hinting at with the the uh, architectural paradigm shift from from kind of "Quote unquote regular data to big data is that um, there, there's a there's an inherent bandwidth problem when you start to reach into that uh, many hundreds of, of terabyte scale, and by bandwidth I mean well you know you, if you've got 500 terabytes of petabyte of data uh, and it's sitting on spinning media because you're, you're at least not yet you're probably not putting that much data on SSD uh, just because of the the cost per terabyte issue. So if you've got that much data and it's sitting on traditional spinning SATA drives, right, which it probably is no matter where it's sitting, if you want to do something with it and not just store it, <laughs> right, if you actually want to analyze it and get some value out of it, well, you have to pick the bits up and move them from the platter that they're sitting on to a CPU somewhere, right? You got you to get the, the bits from A to B. Uh, and, and if you do that in a uh, traditional architecture where you've separated compute from storage, which is how really almost all of our classic uh, you know, IT designs look, right? You've got compute on one side with maybe in Cisco B-series blades, hopefully, right? You've got, you got blades or you've got uh, rack mount servers, but all they are are kind of CPU, CPU and memory um, resources. And then separated from your enterprise class storage array, uh, where all the bits sit, uh, by some sort of fabric, 
sand fabric, uh, maybe an Ethernet fabric if you're doing uh, some some NAS uh, attached uh, uh, storage and that sort of thing. Um, and that fabric, as well as the controllers and the arrays, uh, introduce oversubscription, introduce bottlenecks, uh, bandwidth bottlenecks. Um, and and the, exam, the, the kind of just dirty back of the envelope example I'll give you is uh, you take a 7200 RPM SATA drive, right? Um, you know, kind of drive you can you can get just about anywhere. Um, it can if you if you read the bits sequentially. Uh, if you do you know, random reads are going to be uh, way worse. But if you do a sequential read, that that drive can sustain and deliver data at about 80 megabytes a second, right? Uh, maybe even higher, maybe 100 megabytes a second. So you take that and you take a, a enterprise class storage array with 500 spindles in it. Uh, 500 spindles, each of which can deliver at 80 megabytes a second. You're talking 40 gigabyte per second, uh, 320 gigabit. Um, that's a fat SAN to not bottleneck, to not oversubscribe, assuming you can get all those disks moving and delivering data at the same time. Well, that's exactly what we're trying to do in a, in a big data world. We're, we're trying to parallelize, massively parallelize, uh, moving bits off of disk to CPUs. And if we tried to do that over traditional architectures, traditional separate compute and storage architectures, we'd, we'd run headlong against that bandwidth problem. And that's just the first 500 disks, by the way, right? Double it, triple it. Uh, try to build a non-oversubscribed fabric. Try not to saturate the, the array controllers uh, by, by doing that. And you'll find it's, it's a very difficult task if not impossible. So the solution, almost always, and in, in, in whether it's Hadoop, whether it's Cassandra, whether it's Mongo, whether it's uh, HBase, whether they, any of these kind of uh, next-gen uh, big data architectures, the solution almost always is stop trying to move a mountain of data. Moving mountains is hard. Let's combine compute and storage together in the same local entity. And so this notion of and that's why the, the title of the session is, you know, the rack mount server. Uh, the notion is, let's take a rack mount server and let's pack it full of spindles. Co-locate CPU and disk. Let the CPUs read right over the PCI bus. Uh, so you're, 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 you're zero over subscription, right? Um, and try to avoid moving blocks around the fabric if you can. Uh, and that's a real fundamental architectural shift I mean, if you think about what we've been doing for so many years um, in the in the whether it's traditional databases, whether it's uh, private clouds, whether it's virtualization, any of those kinds of things, uh, we've we've kept compute and storage separate. And 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 big data says let's let's not do that because uh, we're trying to solve a different problem. Okay, thanks, Sean. It's it's Brad here. Can you talk a minute about some of of Cisco's solutions specifically on that, and maybe some of the validated designs you would recommend uh, if you were architecting something? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so we we got into uh, I mentioned I joined Cisco about five years ago, and it was probably six months after I joined that I really started uh, working on uh, some of our big data partnerships and uh, architectures and that sort of thing. Um, our, our business unit. So I'm, I'm in the field. The business unit has uh, been all over this for, for those many years. Um, we, I think our first partnership was with Cloudera way back then, but uh, we've built up uh, really good relationships 
with a lot of the leaders uh, in this, from the software side, a lot of the ISVs in the space, so Cloudera, Hortonworks, MapR, et cetera. Um, and over the years, we've developed uh, what we call our Cisco integrated infrastructure for big data, our, our reference architecture for uh, these, these applications um, in conjunction with those ISVs and uh, have now, I think we're in our th uh, third iteration with our Hadoop reference architectures. We've also got them for uh, companies like Splunk and um, uh, I think developing with uh, Informatica and a few others at this point. So um, we've got uh, what we call Cisco validated design CVDs. Um, these are the same, that's a, that's a branding for a, for a type of reference architecture document that Cisco's done for all kinds of different things. Most, you know, well beyond the big data space, um, but specific to big data, we've we've got a number of those uh, with the, the some of the ISVs I just mentioned, um, and basically what they do is give you a blueprint, a very deep uh, step by step blueprint, screenshot by screenshot even uh, for uh, I think some I think the the latest one with I think it was the Cloudera ones like 250 300 pages long, so lots of detail. Uh, and it sh tells you how to set up not just our hardware, not just our recommended uh, reference design, uh, but also how to install and configure the operating system and then install and configure the particular ISV's distribution. Uh, so really nice uh, blueprint there to, to get up and running. Uh, on the, to your question on the, on the Cisco side, what does it look like? Well, uh, generally speaking, it's uh, our rack mount server line and specifically uh, the two socket uh, servers, the C220 and the C240, uh, make their way into the mix, uh, connected to Fabric Interconnects, uh, 6248s or 6296s, um, and then uh, packed full of internal spindles, depending uh, you know, the combination of how many spindles and what type and what CPU and how much memory and all of that. That We've got a number of different options there, depending on your, your needs. Um, and then, uh, again, managed all under the umbrella of, of UCS Manager. Hey, Sean, this is Chris Nickel. Um, any thought on Cisco's M-Series for any of that type of work? I, I had a customer who had recently asked about it. Yeah, um, interesting one. So, so M series uh, for those who aren't familiar uh, is a new server line that we introduced on say last fall, uh, roughly time frame yep. wise. Yep. Um, and it is um, it's it's really a, a there's I'm I'm going to get the marketing term wrong for what category they Gartner puts this in or, or with that, but it's a um, it is a somewhat blade like. Uh, uh, server deployment, you know, uh, architecture, um, but one that shares a uh, through the, the power of the Cruise ASIC in in the VIC, um, a uh, access to a common PCI framework, um, and so essentially you've got a, a a chassis that accepts cartridges, and the cartridges are E3 based Intel cartridges today, at least. Uh, that, that may change in the future with some additional options, but today those are those are E3 compute cartridges, um, and it allows basically all of the servers on those cartridges uh, to access 
a common pool of, of uh, SSD in the in the back of the chassis, uh, so you can kind of slice and dice uh, the the storage there and feed those those servers. Um, now, when it comes to big data, uh, I don't think it's a play today, uh, mm-hmm. simply because of the uh, data requirements. When we're talking petabyte scale or hundreds of terabytes. Uh, you're not going to get that in SSDs in the in the back of of the M series, um, but uh, could there be new cartridge options uh, that might uh, allow for more dense storage uh, possibilities? There could be. Yeah, there were in in this particular case, they were looking at it as a um, more of a front end to other hosted storage, maybe on. And I don't remember the model number. There's a C series with um, a ton of disk in it. Oh, the 3160. Yeah. Yeah, the Calusa server. So, so I mean, it, th- that that too is possible. Um, uh, the 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 trick there is you're back to separating compute and storage, right? You're you're you've got all your compute sitting in the M series cartridges, and then you've got all your storage sitting over in the the 3160. And you to do anything with the storage, you got to move it again across a fabric. Now. That doesn't mean it wouldn't work, uh, and what would be really interesting would be to, to find a, a you know a, a networking method between those two entities that wouldn't be oversubscribed at, at scale. Um, that that could get really uh, kind of uh, powerful, I think, because it could give you the benefit of both the uh, independent scale of compute and storage, so you can you know, whichever one you're needing more of, you can adjust while not basically falling back into the same trap that led us uh, down to develop these architectures, these these uh, joint compute and storage architectures in the first place, which is the bandwidth problem I, I was talking about earlier. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Yeah, it's, it's Brad here. Um, Sean, can you tell us about any uh, acquisitions or partnering uh, that play a key role within this space? Uh, certainly on the partnering side, uh, as I mentioned, we, we are very close with the three main uh, Hadoop vendors, uh, Cladera, Hortonworks, MAPR. I've uh, been working with all of them for, for a number of years now. Uh, also, companies like Splunk, uh, we're, we're, we're seeing a lot of demand there with our customer base um, and, are, and are doing quite well with them. Um, and then on the acquisition side, we did bring in, um, boy, has it been two, can't be two years already. I think it's been two years uh, since we brought in a, a, a company called Composite Software. Um, while not specifically a big data technology, uh, Composite is an interesting data management um, and data virtualization uh, capability and, and technology that uh, we're seeing uh, you know, a greater and greater demand for, and, and the idea is essentially to kind of mask um, the access uh, to a heterogeneous set of uh, data sources. Uh, and, and by that, I mean, if you have, uh, in a typical, typical enterprise, you're going to have uh, business analysts and developers and so forth with all kinds of different tools, uh, almost all of which speak SQL, speak the structured query language of a relational database. Um, And underneath that are data sources that 
can really run the gamut. You've got relational databases, you've got maybe cloud data sources like Salesforce or what have you. You've got big data sources like Hadoop. You've got uh, data warehouses, and all, all most companies have some or all of the above. And you end up with this very sort of tangled, brittle um, uh, connectivity, connective tissue, if you will, between those tools on the top and the data sources on the bottom. And every time you add a new tool, you have to figure out how to connect it to all possible data sources, and it has to understand all their schemas and so forth. And every time you add a new data source or change a data source, change a schema in a data source, you have to go back around and fix all of that again. And that's that's ugly. Uh, so the idea with, with Cisco Data Virtualization, which is, uh, I think, actually the brand name now is Cisco Information Server, um, is to insert a kind of metadata layer between the tools and the data sources that presents what is effectively a logical data warehouse uh, to the tools. Uh, so uh, a data warehouse that, that is just sort of there in software and masks the complexity of the, the heterogeneity of the data sources underneath it. Uh, and allow you to change tools, change data sources without breaking everything every time. Uh, and so to the extent that big data is one of many data sources uh, that, that, that can interface with, with the uh, Cisco Information Server, uh, yes, that is uh, relevant certainly in the, in the space. Hey, this is uh, Stuart. So, I mean, we, we, let's just say maybe we could circle back a little bit on this big data. I mean, it's it's... I mean, what is it? Is it is it um, you know to the regular um, you know IT person out there? Is it um, the Internet of Things? Um, is it our social media data? Um, you know, is it all of that kind of um, mangled into or merged into one to contribute to this big data? Yeah, and this is where it gets fuzzy, right? Uh, you know, the 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 joke. You know, you hear this term of a. Uh, of a data scientist, right? Uh, this this new job title, and the joke is a data scientist is a business analyst that lives in California, right? It, it's it's kind of a lot of hype around it, right? And maybe uh, maybe not everybody that's calling themselves a data scientist is really doing actual data science. Um, but when you when you get, I think when you tear it away, tear things down a little bit, you're you're really just looking to take advantage of all the data available to a given company, to a given enterprise, and not just the real rigid structured stuff that comes in through their OLTP systems or, or, or what have you. Um, so uh, the uh, example I've, I've uh, used in the past maybe that, that we can all relate to is this, um, uh, is with UPS, the, the package, the parcel service, right? Um, UPS trucks, uh, if you watch, go, do this next time you're in, on your commute, um, they rarely make left turns. Um, they do that very specifically. Uh, going back to early 2000s, I guess, they started instrumenting their trucks. They've got a fleet of a couple hundred thousand trucks. Um, and they started instrumenting those trucks with sensors, uh, brake sensors, accelerometers, uh, how long, you know, uh, sensors that can measure whether, uh, you know, fuel economy and idling time, um, and then eventually GPS. Um, and all of those sensors generate data, right? Times a couple hundred thousand <laughs> uh, trucks, times 
uh, you know, three iterations per minute, or, or I have no idea, right? But but pretty pretty regular uh, uh, updates, right? Telling you what's going on inside the vehicle. Maybe maybe updates every second. Who knows? That's a lot of data, and it's a lot of messy data. It's a lot of data that uh, is not nicely tidy, uh, tidily structured, um, and the the sensors in a big fleet like that. The ones you installed in 2003 may differ from the ones you installed in 2005 or 2008, and so they may output their their data in a slightly different way, um, and maybe give you more information in the newer models than you had in the old. And it's it's a messy problem. It's like looking. It's like digging through a you know var log messages, right? You look at a you look at the uh, the output of all those alerts and errors and stuff, and it's it's kind of ugly to look at, right? So how do you, first of all, how do you collect all of that information in, at scale in a reasonable time frame at a reasonable cost? How do you store it long enough to make use of it? Uh, you you want to you be able to keep years of that data so that you can go back and ask historical questions. Hey, do, do we need to change the way we, we uh, run our routes over Labor Day weekend because we see a historical you know, uh, change in, in, in traffic patterns or what have you? Um, and then you want to be able to ask questions that you, never, that you, you haven't even thought of yet. Um, and so UPS did all of this over time. Um, and what, after collecting enough of this information and, and, and you know, running kind of ad hoc queries and, and analysis on it, they, they're able to figure out that, you know what, most of the time it costs us money for our trucks to make a left turn. Most of the time uh, that leads to either a higher accident rate uh, longer idle time, uh, meaning we're wasting fuel. Uh, maybe uh, you know, I don't know, trucks getting lost or something like that. Um, right. More traffic issues. Um, so every day when they get the route map, they recalculate uh, and they decide, okay, for knowing that you have to hit these, you know, 25 addresses, what's the best and most efficient way of doing that? Uh, right. And so, so that's, that's what. Okay. Yeah, so right what so so right what you're saying is is that we collect all of this big data and you're going to provide the computational power to make sense of that data so that we can organize it efficiently within databases and then provide those analytics to to whoever, right? Yeah, yeah, and and to provide data sources and data sets that were traditionally either ignored because they were assumed to be um, uninteresting or, or, or not valuable, or right. ignored because they just they simply cost too much to store. Like you're not going to take sensor data from 200,000 UPS trucks and shove them into a Teradata data warehouse at $25,000 a terabyte. You're just not going to do that. It's too much money, right? But right. if it was $500 a terabyte, okay, let's talk. Let's see what we can do with with the data if we could collect it. Right. Uh, what right. Questions so just trying to make sense of that. Yeah. Yeah. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. yeah no, this I, is really I, I, interesting because I can see this applying not only to, um, you know, to you know, delivery trucks or couriers or that matter, but it even to just like the minor, um, the things like in wireless, where uh, which is my realm, uh, where we can actually take that big data that we collect in Cisco Prime infrastructure on a daily basis of uh, historical connections, why devices roam. Um, you know, what was their readings and how do we take that information and and capture it in a meaningful way because we'd like to know 
what's happening with those those devices. We see Absolutely. so many connecting here, and we want to know why it is, right? And, Actually, and I think I, we're getting close to that with like with you know with Cisco CMX and location analytics and all that other stuff. But it, yeah. it sounds like it's you know this is really kind of on the cusp of it. I mean, I know big data has been around for a little while, but now after hearing you, kind of really. Um, uh, it kind of ch- it changes my view on it now. Like I really yeah. now my view is quite different now. Now it's making it's clear as mud now. <laughs> Good. Well, <laughs> I, 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 to your to your point on on the wireless devices, I'll give you a, a, a specific use case we had with a customer that were a retail, a big box retailer, right? Um, they they are fighting the the battle, uh, uh, the, the brick and mortar versus cloud. Battle. Basically, they're they don't want to be Amazon, right? You know, to, to be Googled is a good verb. To be Amazon, not a good verb, right? That that is a, that's a, that's that's the death knell for a retailer, right? And what happens is that people, I'm sure we've all done this. You you go into I don't know Best Buy or or whatever, and you go to the TV aisle and you poke and prod all the cool buttons and and televisions, find the exact model you like. And then you whip out your smartphone and you look up the model number on Amazon and you go, oh, I can get that for 10% less delivered to my door tomorrow. Thanks for letting me, you know, showroom this in your in your facility, um, Best Buy or whoever it is, right? I'm uh, just an example. They, they can't, the retailers can't stand that, understandably so, right? They're 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 actually they're serving as Amazon showroom, right? And they're not getting a nickel out of it. But sure. what if? And, and by the way, even worse is is that the customers are using the store's own Wi-Fi to leave them, right? <laughs> they're they're yep. logging onto the store's <laughs> Wi-Fi. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Thanks for the infrastructure to let me go shop elsewhere, right? Yeah. Uh, understandably, very frustrating scenario for the retailer. But wait a minute, they are using our Wi-Fi. What what can we do with that, right? Uh, at, at at a minimum. You could say, all right, well, there's, you know, if you look at the data that's coming across the Wi-Fi, it's it's all messy, it's unstructured, it's it's ugly, but there's nuggets in there. You're going to see a URL going to Amazon with a model number or a Google search in it, right? You might mm-hmm. be able to triangulate that that device on the showroom floor. You might be able to uh, send a, 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 a helper out to the floor and, and ask them if they have any questions. You might even provide, I mean, it gets a little big brothery, right? But you might be able to provide an opt-in model and say, hey, use um, use our, our uh, store app to do your price check. We know you're going to do it anyway. So use our, our app. And if you find it lower, uh, we'll match it. We'll keep you in the store, right? Uh, those kinds of possibilities become available if you're able to to actually ingest that flooded the data and and filter it in near real time or real time and do something with it and analyze it and make some decisions based on it. Right. Uh, so maybe the lesson is don't use store Wi-Fi. I don't know, but uh, you know, you're, you're gonna you're gonna see these kinds of yep. use cases pop up. Well, store right. and, and store Wi-Fi. You know, it um, it can it can be very revealing. It can tell you exactly sure. what it is that you need to do. Right. It can be yeah. very helpful in your designs. And that's the thing. It could be just a yeah. passive thing. You could just, if nothing else, uh, even if you don't exactly. want to, you, yep. you know, kind of scare them away and do the big brother thing. If nothing else, you can learn behavior patterns. You could find exactly. out that, you know, yep. this particular skew 
is getting uh, looked up a lot, and we have a pricing problem with that SKU. Uh So what are our top 10 SKUs that people are looking up, but then walking out the door, not purchasing? That would be really mm-hmm. interesting yep, for sure. to know, right? But how yep. do you know? How do you how do you learn the negative there? How do you do that without uh, some some sort of big data tech, type of technology? Well, this is it, and I think I think maybe um, uh, to to kind of segue into this is, you know, you talk about collecting the data and using it, um, you know. Um, how should I say, um, effectively, you know, for good good purposes. But what are the what are the security, you know, uh, what are the privacy concerns that you know that that come up with big data? Uh, significant, right? And and I'll admit this is not an area I am particularly strong. Um, but I think I think basically you take all of the security concerns that you've had for years with quote unquote regular data. Um, and then you 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 amplify those because of the the quantity involved. Um, so the data management um, and and data uh, uh, you know like the custodial chain um, uh, for data that's been a long-standing problem in the enterprise long before big data ever came about. Who owns what? How do you scrub personal identifiable information? Uh, you know, how do you how do you become PCI compliant and so on and so forth? Uh-huh. Those problems were never really solved and still haven't been in traditional data. And so when you get into the big data realm, they become amplified. Um, there's also this notion in, in, in big data of um, uh, of kind of tearing down barriers and silos between data sets because data gets really interesting when you're able to combine uh, data sets, even data sets that you assumed had nothing to do with each other that were orthogonal. Uh, turns out maybe they're not. Uh, turns out maybe they're pretty interesting. If you can, uh, if you're UPS and you combine uh, sensor data from trucks with weather data or, um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, uh, 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 traffic information, wh- wh- whatever the case may be, right? Um, you, so, so this notion of reducing barriers between uh, data sets and therefore the owners of those data sets therefore introduces, I think, some pretty difficult questions to ask. Okay, well then, well, who who can see all of this stuff? Um, For sure, right? Right. Yep. Uh, and who, how, does that, how does that get used? How does, yeah, exactly, who has access? How does it get used yeah. in order to store? And what's the lifetime, right? Do right. we keep that right. just for a couple of years to see, you know, what our trends are? Are we just right. using it for trending analysis? Um, you know, are we too worried about the MAC address? Are we too worried about capturing user users device names and whatnot right so I, I think a, it's, an interesting uh, there somebody did a so this is this is one where where big data the the techniques available in big data get, get kind of uh, interesting and a little scary there's a somebody did a proof of concept of um how would they call the website it was like catpicks.com or, or something and it was basically because <laughs> everybody looks at cats right everybody looks at you know internet's full of cats right it's powered by cats so they they went out and I think they went on like uh, Instagram or a couple of the big social media sites that that are that are where the APIs are are open and you can run queries. And you know when you take a picture, a digital picture, there's all this metadata that's usually attached to it, right? Uh, the, sometimes even geospatial data, like where did the where was the picture taken, and uh, you know of course all the like the shutter speed and all that kind of stuff. 
Um, and a lot of people don't know that that's, that data is attached and that gets uploaded to these services and basically gives away the location of where it was, was taken. This, this proof of concept, and the guy was just showing it, like, look, this is a benign example, but an example nonetheless of, the, you know, I can, uh, by analyzing all of this, kind of figure out who lives where, and um, I, I can't remember, um, he basically tell you uh, within some degree of certainty, um, you know, what what neighborhood a, a given cat lives in and, and so forth. And it was like, it was a little tongue in cheek, but it was it was also pretty eye opening. Um, you know what what's what's out there for the taking if we're not a little bit more careful about how we manage data sets. Okay, yeah, Sean, it's it's Brad here. How, how does one manage all of this e equipment uh, that they've got? For for example, you know the rack um, equipment is it as simple as UCS Director? Yeah, great question. So. Um, as you, as you may know, uh, right, we came out to came to market with UCS um, what seven years ago uh, with the Blade uh, product line with the the B series, um, and that was just, you know really revolutionary and quite successful. Um, and it was followed a year or two later by the C series, the rack mount server line. Um, and what's unique uh, about the way we do system management is that regardless of whether the form factor is a rack mount uh, or a blade, uh, we see it the same way effectively in UCS Manager. So if you've got a, rack, a C series server connected to a fabric interconnector, you got a B series server connected to fabric interconnector, we don't really care in the sense that it's just a different tab in UCS Manager. All of the, all of the policies, all of the uh, resource pools, all of the service profile capabilities, are essentially identical between uh, form factors. Uh, so because we're talking about a, a rack mount world here, because we need a lot of real estate for internal disks, uh, we're, we're talking C-series, um, and we're talking lots of them, usually. Um, a, a, a starter uh, Hadoop cluster might have, you know, uh, 10 or 20 servers um, just, to, just to stand the thing up. Uh, most of these big data architectures are, are uh, scale-out architectures. They are designed to have lots and lots and lots of servers doing lots of work in parallel. Um, so it's not uncommon to see uh, 50 servers, 100 servers, 500 servers. We've got a number of customers with over 1,000 servers in the same cluster. Uh, so you're, you're, you're taking essentially the same config and and duplicating it over and over again. You're, I like to think of it as building a supercomputer out of uh, industry standard x86 parts. Right? It's one big supercomputer with a lot of individual pieces. And to get that supercomputer working well and optimized and managed easily uh, at scale uh, it, it uh, is where UCS manager and service profiles really come into their own. Uh, the idea is that hey, you can create a service profile template and build all of your Hadoop nodes off of that same template and ensure that you're going to deploy consistently. Uh, whether you've got 10 or 100 or 1,000, you know they're all going to look exactly the same way and you're not going to introduce weird anomalies and configuration drift and so forth into the mix. Now, we've taken that a step further to your question on director. We've taken that a step further uh, and introduced a product last year called UCS Director Express for big data. 
And uh, if you think about UCS Manager, right, that's a software entity that runs inside the Fabric Interconnect, controls compute storage, uh, uh, networking, everything under that UCS domain, uh, and does so through uh, open XML API that everybody's got access to. Uh, the corollary you can think of uh, over in the Hadoop space would be any of the major Hadoop distributions, MapR, Cloudera, Hortonworks, they have their own cluster manager software. Uh, so Cloudera Manager, or Ambari, or what have you. Um, and those software uh, cluster managers manage all of the individual nodes from kind of the operating system north, kind of operating system up into the, the ISV software. They have, they're completely blind to the, the hardware down, right? So on the one hand, you have UCS Manager that understands all the hardware and its configurations. On the other hand, you have uh, the, the, cluster the, the ISV's cluster manager software that understands all the software stuff. Wouldn't it be great if you had an entity that could speak to both? Well, that's what Director Express does. So it takes advantage of our OpenXML API. It takes advantage of these ISVs, uh, their, their cluster manager utilities and their open APIs, and basically speaks to both uh, and allows you to uh, do some essentially kind of push-button provisioning of a new cluster from soup to nuts, right? Hardware all the way through the software side. Uh, so nice capability there. So I don't mean to uh, cut off a good conversation, but I have to cut off a good conversation just based on time. So I want to thank everybody for joining us and asking really good questions of Sean, uh, especially Brad, Chris, and Stu, our Cisco Champions hosts. Um, and if this sounds like a topic that we want to dig into again, uh, please let me know, and we'll see if we can get Sean to join us again. But look for this episode, another fabulous episode, on iTunes and blogs.cisco.com. This episode will be up later this week, hopefully today. I'm Kim Austin, and I've played the part of today's moderator. Tune in next week for another good show. In the meantime, I'll see you on Cisco Spark and the Twitterverse. Over and out for now. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.